0: We have been going through the book of James in our Sunday morning services, and it so happened that the text for today fits very well with a Confirmation Sunday. James chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 14, and read through verse 26 in Jesus' name. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The, de- the demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them by another way. Just as the body without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Father, these are words that you have given to us by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would guide us into your truth. We believe that your word is everlasting truth. And I ask, O oh God, that the words of my mouth today, the meditations of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Sports in America today, for many people, have become really like a religion. They even use religious terms. You see it in the signs in the stands where often you'll see something about faith. You've probably seen those signs, you've got to believe, or we believe, or for Minnesota teams, do you believe in miracles? Um, that's what it would have taken last night when the Wild were playing Las Vegas. Four to nothing, we got smoked. And I would say, Lord, we need a miracle, right? Do you believe in miracles? Miracles. Whenever I see signs like those in the stands, my, my theological training uh, kicks in. And it makes me want to ask some questions of those who would put those signs up. In what or whom are we to believe? Or will this really make a difference in the outcome of the game? Or what if the fans cheering for the other team also believe, and what does it really mean to believe? Any of you want to ask those questions when you see them in the stands at a ball game? Most of you don't. You need a theological mind, right? So what is faith? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? We've had confirmation students today confessing their, their faith in Jesus. What does it really mean? Interesting, as you look at the text we read this morning, uh, James describes in this passage three kinds of faith. Only one of which is a saving faith. There is a dead faith. There is a demonic faith, the faith of demons. And then there's that third kind of faith, which I would call a dynamic faith. See, they all start with a D, so... You ought to be able to remember that when you leave today. A dead faith, a demonic faith, or a dynamic faith. So the first faith he talks about is a dead faith. And this would be a faith of the the mind alone, the intellect alone. And it's the kind of faith that, that many people have today. Many people would say they have faith in Jesus But it is only just a claim. It is is not a real living faith. And the reason why it is not a real living faith is because a dead faith does not change a person's life. It's just an intellectual assent to the truth of Scripture. It is not seen in the fruit of their life. And so we would have to say, in accordance with what James says here, that that is a dead faith. James tells us that this dead faith is a useless faith in two ways. For one thing, it is useless in the lives of others. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, now picture this, here's this person who needs clothes and needs food, and you say, go in peace. Be warm and filled. And James says, and you don't do anything? You don't give them what is necessary for their body? What use is that, he says? And the obvious answer to that question is that such faith is of no use. It is of no benefit to those in need because it doesn't result in the fruit of love. Verse 26, James says, For just as the body without the Spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So it's of no use to others if you've got a dead faith that is not seen in the fruit of your life. But James also says that a dead faith is useless to the one who claims to have faith. Verse 14, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith But he has no works. And then he asks the question, can that faith save him? What's the obvious question to, or the answer to that question? The obvious answer is no. This kind of faith does not save. And the reason why it does not save is because it never really embraces Jesus. And thus never results in a changed life. And sad to say, there are many people in our churches today, in this country, who have that kind of faith. It's dead. It has not changed them. It has not transformed their life. And so James says that is a dead faith. I heard one man say one time, he said, these people are on their way to hell with a catechism in one hand and a hymn book in the other. Now think of that. People who have grown up in in the church, they have been taught the Word of God, they can give answers to to biblical questions, they've sung all the hymns, but they don't have a living relationship with Jesus. How sad can that be? Now these young people have gone through confirmation instruction and they have confessed Their faith in Jesus. We trust that it's seen in the fruit of their lives because it's a real, living trust in Jesus. Otherwise, it's a dead faith. Faith without works is dead. Then James talks about a second kind of faith and we would call this a demonic faith. It's a faith of the mind. There is intellectual. and it may even stir the emotions. Notice what James says about demons. Verse 19, You believe that God is one. James says you you do well. (laughs) That is good theology. That's right. That is correct. But then he adds also this statement. He said the demons also believe the demons also believe that there is one God. That God is one. And what James is referring to here is what we call the Shema, taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This was like a creed that the Jewish people would recite daily. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel! The Lord our God is one, or the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And so, as far as the content of that statement is concerned, that is good theology. That is theologically correct. And in contrast to the nations all around Israel who believed in many gods, the people of Israel said, No, there is just one God, one alone. James tells us that correct theology isn't enough to save a person because even the demons have correct theology. In fact, think of this. Demons have better theology than some pastors today. How sad is that? The demons have better theology than some who are preaching from pulpits today. The demons know who God is. Mark chapter 1, Jesus was in Capriam. He went into the synagogue and they were amazed at his teaching. He was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was a man in the synagogue who was possessed with a demon, an unclean spirit. Here's what he said. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. That's correct theology, right? The demon cried out and said, We know who you are. You are The Holy One of God. And they also believe that God would come to judge them. Because He asked the question, have you come to destroy us? They understood who Jesus is. I'd call that correct theology, but there won't be any demons in heaven. And the same is true for those whose faith is like them. Intellectual assent to the truths of God's Word, does not save. And notice also that these demons, not only do they believe that God is one, James says also, you do well, the demons also believe and they shudder. They shudder. Why do they shudder? Because they know. Their final destiny is judgment. They will be forever in the lake of fire, and as you can well imagine, the word shudder is a very strong word. It denotes the kind of terror that makes one's hair stand up on end. <laughs> well you're looking at me and say, Yeah, what hair are you talking about? So I pointed to my neck. All right? They shudder in fear. Have you shuddered as thinking of the judgment? Have you been emotionally stirred by the proclamation of God's Word? Did you know that to be emotionally stirred, you can be emotionally stirred, still not be saved. I've seen people in in times of preaching of God's Word who were under deep conviction of sin. They were emotionally stirred, but they walked out without surrendering to Jesus. Emotionally stirred. Paul, the apostle, witnessed that on more than one occasion. Remember when he was preaching to Felix in Acts chapter 24? It says that Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And Luke tells us that Felix became frightened. You know what he said? He said, go away. Go away for the present, and when I find time, Paul, I'll call for you. Go away. He didn't want to hear about judgment, and there's no indication that he ever again asked for Paul to come and preach. Yeah. Emotionally stirred? Yeah. Saved? No. Or how about Paul when he spoke to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26? For the end of his testimony before the king, Paul said, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then Paul says, I know that you do. I know that you believe the Word of God. And then Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Kind of, you know, mocking him. Oh, you know the way you're going. You know, you know. I'm going to start believing in Jesus. Of course, he was was mocking him. And Paul said, "I wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains." And after Paul was done speaking, he was sent to Rome to to stand before Caesar. And as far as we know, Agrippa never became a Christian. He was almost, almost persuaded, but lost. We have a hymn in our hymnal that speaks of that, right? Almost persuaded. Philip Bliss was listening to a sermon and the pastor was preaching on that passage of Scripture about Herod Agrippa. And he made this statement, He who is almost persuaded is almost saved, but to be almost saved is to be entirely lost. Almost. And so Philip Bliss wrote that hymn. Almost persuaded now to believe, almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, Go, Spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day. On thee I'll call. Almost persuaded, come. Come today. Almost persuaded, turn not away. Jesus invites you here. Angels are lingering near. Prayers rise from hearts so dear. Oh, wanderer, come. Almost persuaded, harvest is past. Almost persuaded, doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, the bitter wail, almost but lost. And I wonder how many people will be in hell someday who would say, I was almost saved. I was under deep conviction of my sin. I knew I needed a Savior, but I did not yield to Jesus. I was almost saved but lost. Oh friend, I hope that is not the case for you today. That you realize you need Jesus, but you have not yielded to Him. And you walk out the door and say, I was so close. Almost saved is not enough. That is to be lost. And that's what a demonic faith is. An intellectual understanding, agreement with truth, and maybe even emotionally stirred as you think of judgment one day, but never embracing Jesus. That's our need today, that we would embrace Jesus. The third kind of faith that James describes here Is what I would call a a dynamic faith. That's a faith certainly that involves the mind agreeing with the truth. And maybe our emotions may also be stirred, but it it changes our lives. A dynamic faith is a saving faith because it results in a changed life. It produces spiritual fruit. And what did Jesus say? By their fruits you shall know them. And so a living faith changes our lives. Martin Luther says, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already done them. And it is always at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. Luther says it is a living thing. Faith in Jesus, real faith in Jesus is a living thing. And notice how James then gives a couple examples of this kind of faith. Very contrasting examples. One is in the life of Abraham. Verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now when you read that, does it cause you to say, wait wait a minute here. (laughs) what, What does the Apostle Paul say? Justified by faith. James says justified by works. And it's just like, okay, how do those fit together? Well, if we're going to understand what James is saying, we need to look at this event in the life of Abraham in its proper context. Notice verse 23. In verse 23, James quotes from Genesis to show that Abraham was justified by faith. Verse 23. The Scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God. And what? It was reckoned to him as Righteousness. That quote comes from Genesis chapter 15. The offering up of Isaac, referred to in verse 21, is in Genesis chapter 22, which is seven chapters later. Chronologically, it's about 30 years of time had elapsed between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. Which would tell us, that Abraham had been a believer long before offering Isaac on the altar. So we can say with certainty that salvation was by faith apart from any good works. But faith is something that you and I, cannot see. We can't look into someone's heart. It isn't visible to us. So the only way that we can know if faith is real is by its fruit. It's by its works. And that's why James points to what Abraham did in offering up Isaac, because that is something that we can see, something visible. That is the fruit of Abraham's faith. Now, there's something interesting here. There are two different words used for the word see. S-E-E. Verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And then he says in verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Here's the interesting thing. In verse 24, the word... For see, or verse 22, the word for see means simply to look. Just like I would look and I see all of you. Okay? In verse 24, the word see means to perceive or to understand. So, seeing the fruit of good works in a believer's life causes me to perceive or to understand that that is an evidence of faith. So we see the fruit of faith and we, ah, oh no, we see the works and we say, there is the fruit of a living faith. There was a little girl who came home and she said to her brother, she said, I asked Jesus into my heart. And he said, Let me see. <laughs> well, if it was a living relationship with Jesus, it would clearly be seen. And there's Abraham, right? In chapter 15 of Genesis, he believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. In chapter 22, the fruit of his faith was seen in his offering up of Isaac on the altar. It was a living, dynamic faith in Jesus. Then we have Rahab. Probably isn't a person in Scripture that that would be stand in greater contrast to Abraham. I mean, Abraham was... Was a respectable Israelite and Rahab before she was saved was a pagan prostitute. I mean, they were about as opposite as could be. And yet, James says they both illustrate a living faith because their life changed. The fruit of faith was evident. Verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? The obvious answer is yes. Rahab's faith was shown to be real. Why? Because it resulted in the fruit of good works. Here's Rahab's testimony. Here's her confession of faith taken from Joshua chapter 2. Verse 8 says, Now before they lay down, She came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. When we heard it, our hearts melted. And no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. And here's her testimony. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is her confession. There is her testimony of faith. And it was seen then in the way that she lived. Luther says, faith alone saves. But the faith that saves is not alone. Get that? Faith alone saves. But if it is a living faith, it is never alone because it will be seen. Evidence in the fruit in our lives. The oldest sister of Daniel Webster married a man by the name of John Colby. And he was said to be the most wicked man in the neighborhood. I assume that uh, her parents weren't real happy, huh? I'd like you to meet my lover. I'd like you to meet just a wonderful man. They said, "Who? oh my goodness, him? Well, guess what? John Colby put his trust in Jesus. And so Daniel Webster went to meet him. And on entering the house, he saw John Colby with his Bible open, reading the Scriptures, And when Daniel Webster came in the room, he said, brother, he said, let's let's have some prayer together. And Daniel Webster is just like, what on earth has happened to him? And when the visit was done, Webster said to a friend, I would like you to hear what enemies of Christianity say of Colby's conversion. Here was a man as unlikely to become a Christian as anyone I have ever seen. And yet... Here he is, a penitent, trusting, humble believer, nothing short of the grace of Almighty God. That's a living faith. That's a dynamic faith, a faith that transforms a person's life. So where do you stand before God today? Do you have a living faith in Jesus? I hope it's not just an intellectual thing where you can say that you agree with the things of God's Word and and that's all it is. I hope it's a dynamic faith that has changed your life, that has transformed you, that is seen in the fruits of God's work in your life. If you don't have a living faith in Jesus, the solution is not to try and add some works to your life. Douglas Moose says, It is not that works must be added to faith, but that genuine faith includes works. That is its very nature. And so the solution. The solution is to put your trust in Jesus today. As your only hope of salvation, He will forgive you and He will transform you and it will be seen in your life. It will be. Faith alone saves But the faith that saves is not alone. It always results in the fruit of good works. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the clear teaching of what a living faith is. Not just simply believing facts in our minds. Not being stirred emotionally. But it changes us in heart and life so that it is evident to those around us that Jesus Christ is our savior and our lord and we desire to walk with him and to serve him lord would you do your work in our midst this morning for the glory and the praise of your name for it is in jesus name that we pray